Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kendall Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 466, being recorded on the 6th of July, 2023, with special guest Linda Shear. And Sajid and our teams with me, we have Russell and our special guest Linda, we're going to get to in just a minute to talk about uh, a topic that is very, very on top of mind uh, of everybody today, including our listeners. And so we're going to get to that in just a, a minute. But before that, we'll cover uh, just a couple of items. So maybe just one item. Uh, what do we got in the uh, in the uh, news items here? Uh, Russell, uh, I have one, so I'll cover that. Uh, and this is uh, about the upcoming changes to the Docker public repository. So, you know, we all use containers from the, from the Docker repository that are public. You can access them anonymously. And they're going to put, start putting limits on how uh, frequently you can pull those um, those uh, repositories. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you kind of rely on that for your CI/CD process or for, you know, for, for your development uh, on your uh, computers and your laptops, uh, you're going to have, uh, you may have some problems with that. And so uh, what ACR has now introduced in preview is a, is a way to cache some of these uh, public repositories inside of your ACR. And so what you could do is you could just, uh, you know, pull down uh, the uh, the curated list of repositories, put them in your ACR, and then you reference them directly from the ACR. And this way, uh, you, you're not going to be subject to those same rate limits, right? I mean, with ACR, it's Pretty much pay as you go, but at least you're not going to be blocked from uh, accessing those public repositories. So that's a, I think, a very important feature. I'm certainly going to have to look at it to see if it impacts some of our uh, own services that we use for the uh, for the Azure podcast to host at and and other uh, other places that we use containers. So that's what I have, Russell. Uh, I guess uh, that's it for the news. Nothing else that popped up on our radar today. So let's guess. Uh, straight to our uh, special guest and our special topic today, uh, which is uh, on Azure OpenAI, which, uh, of course, uh, everybody is talking about these days. And we figured, hey, we should talk about it, too. So, uh, Linda, thanks so much for kind of joining us. I know uh, it was kind of uh, impromptu that you, you, you know, Russell got you onto the show, but we're glad you're here to enlighten our listeners uh, a little bit on, um, uh, you know, on, on what this uh, OpenAI is. Just before you hand over to Linda, I do want to apologise to Linda in public because I've just wrote to her in very short notice. Um, we, we kind of agreed to do this this talk about OpenAI. And when I was out walking at lunchtime, I was just thinking, this might not work unless we uh, unless we rope somebody in that knows quite a bit about OpenAI. So uh, Linda is the most knowledgeable person I know on the subject. So uh, sorry for roping you in short notice, Linda, and thank you very much for, for agreeing to do it. Yeah, I think you're you're underrepresenting yourself. You know, we've been talking to customers together, I think. So we're all rapidly learning in this space. I mean, I have a longer history in AI, but then again, we're in a very different world of AI now, aren't we? So, but before we get into that, let me just introduce myself. So my name is Dr. Linda Sheard. 
Um, I'm a senior cloud solution architect for data and AI, uh, and I work generally across the public sector, but also beyond that with a specialism in geospatial data and uh, all topics AI. And, you know, I, I mean, I, we should say that, uh, you know, AI and ML have been topics that have been around in the Azure space for a long time, right? Uh, but uh, they seem to have just recently, uh, you know, picked up everybody's interest. What would you think, talking to your customers, Linda, what's what's been that impetus point? Has it been like the, the advent of ChatGPT or has it just been, uh, you know, people realizing that uh, AI can, can can really help in their own uh, business use cases? What, what, what are you hearing? I think the key dynamic that's really changed and why why we've all felt this kind of takeoff of AI is that with the new types of models, and I say new, um, these kind of transformer models that underpin um, our generative AI models that ChatGPT is also based on, uh, the paper that underpins all that came out in 2017. So, you know, that's not news as such. Um, but what has happened on top of that is that it's brought together a bunch of domains that were until then very separate. So the computer vision domain and the language domain, for example. Uh, and I think we've seen a tremendous acceleration from the, those communities being brought together, working on the same architecture. So that's one factor. And then combining that with the compute that's now available on our wonderful Azure platform that's helping OpenAI develop these models has contributed to the acceleration. And then the last factor that I want to mention now is that because these models are now so much more generally capable, um, by which I mean that we've moved away from a time where we've had to train very, very specific tasks to be addressed by AI, um, means that it's just much, much easier to take a model off the shelf and use it. So the, the conversation has moved much more from how do I use my own data to train my own model to how do I take one of these models and effectively integrate it into applications? And that's just a much more accessible problem. And we've got a whole ecosystem of plugins and a whole community that's kind of looking at that using space rather than the training space. And I think that's a really big shift. I think that that's that that's kind of raises one of the questions that I had. And and I think, you know, CG has been doing some some playing with uh, transcriptions of our podcast episodes uh, over the last few days. And that it's interesting to see how that works. But I think I guess my question is, when you're building this stuff and you've got this access to this like playground with all the different models and things like that, you get a list of all these different types of model that you can deploy. Where do where do I start? How do I start learning which ones I should be using for what use case? Because it's just I don't know, and and the results we're having with some of the some of the questions we've been asking haven't been strictly um, very very good, <laughs> and I think it's down to the way that we've chosen the model or not trained it or what have you. We've just basically shoved a load of data at it and said go and do this. Possibly, yeah. So that's that's interesting. So I think maybe what I should say is when you've yeah, I think I guess you've used the add your data feature in in OpenAI. Um, the uh, yeah, you bring your own data uh, preview. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, good. Yeah. So one thing that's really important to understand about that is that that's a pattern. Uh, we call it the retrieval augmented generation pattern. Um, and what that actually means is you've not added your data to the model itself. And I think this is a really good point to just take one step back and remind ourselves that these models are not 
malleable as such. So a generative AI model is a static thing that it took an enormous amount of compute over a very long time to get to the state it is. So GPT 3.5, GPT 4, they're very large models um, and they are they are as they are. They don't change as you're interacting with them. So um, the th first thing you might ask yourself is if I have a multi-turn conversation with them, how does it remember what I said before? Why can I refer to something I asked in my first question and what does this mean? How can it hold that context? And the only way it holds that context is because actually when we talk to it, we send the conversation history in. So on every interaction, the model receives the history that it needs to know to be able to respond intelligently with that context. So that's the first thing to understand. So where does your data come in? Um, when you're using that feature to add your data, you're actually adding your data to a knowledge store that is a I almost, I mean, we used to talk about this as the bee's knees, but now I want to call it a traditional implementation of a semantic search architecture um, that you can also get via Azure Cognitive Search. And what that does is it allows you to use language to search your data. So if we forget OpenAI for a minute, what that would do is return you the, I don't know, top X number of most relevant results for your query. Um, and traditionally, we would have had to give you the user either the full list or we've had to we would have had to pick one and tell you this is the answer to your question. But now we can provide just like we can provide our conversation history, we can provide those search results to OpenAI as a context to the conversation that you're now having. And now the really subtle thing that is still fascinating to me is that you can give OpenAI an instruction and tell it just in words, in language, keep your response to what you're getting from that context that we're giving you. Don't give us your own opinion. Uh, and generally, especially GPT-4 will be very good at complying with that. Um, but none of these kind of what we call guardrails or groundings are 100% secure. So sometimes OpenAI will look at the search results and will go, that's not the best answer. And it will try and answer from its own knowledge with quite a lot of confidence. And it might come up with things that you would have never expected. Yeah, that, that, that's that's well put, uh, Linda. But uh, you know, if, if I may, uh, I'd like to, maybe we should just step back a little bit in terms of explaining. And it's good that we've laid down the laid out the entire end-to-end -end experience, right? Which is what uh, you've really done very well. But I want to go back for our listeners and just explain or try to understand what just the fundamental uh, OpenAI um, uh, service does today, right? Uh, if through taking away search or anything else, fundamentally OpenAI just allows us to give, you can give it a, sec, uh, a block of text and you can ask questions on that block of text, right? Essentially, it can reason over that text. And, and that is kind of the, the fundamental thing that it does. I mean, is that is that a right way to think about it, just like from a starting perspective? Because, you know, there's a lot of uh, buzz about, you know, what OpenAI can and cannot do. And I want to make sure we, we, we're we very clear that the OpenAI service does this, right? It, it's not like this magic kind of wand. Oh, it absolutely is a magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it, it just, I like I say, I mean, even having been in AI for a very long time, I, I'm con continually astonished by the kind of things that you can do. And you're right. So the the effect of what I described earlier is that you can have a conversation about the context and you can ask the model to summarize 
those bits of text. But you can also do much more sophisticated things like ask it to extract certain pieces from that text and return them to you in a table. Um, so there's no sort of programming going on under the hood. It's the model actually understanding what is the concept of a table. And you might have to help it with a few examples of exactly the structure that you're looking for. Um, but especially if you give one or two examples, the technical term is one shot or few shot learning um, in your prompt, then that's uh, often with these advanced models enough to get the result that you're looking for. And then and, and glad you mentioned that. So that is uh, what you just talked about, giving examples. Uh, from what I understand uh, in my learning is that that's like fine tuning this model, right? You start with a base model of some sort, and then you're trying to kind of give it a, a few hints or fine tune that. Is that the way to think about it? Or is there like another way that people should think about that uh, that one shot, multi shot or, uh, or, or providing this? Uh, I think you can provide a whole file of, of responses as well. Yeah. No, you're, you're exactly right. It's the same concept, just in terms of technically how we refer to it, we refer to fine tuning uh, as the one where you're giving quite a lot of examples in a file, like you said there. Um, whereas specifically, if you're passing along one or two examples in your prompt, if you say, you know, take these podcasts and tell me, uh, you know, what kind of Azure services Linda mentioned, give me a table. Um, then you might have to give a couple of examples of how you return the right answer to that kind of questions. And one shot means you give one example, few shot means you give a few. But generally, if you go from, uh, you know, if you go from two examples to seven examples to ten examples, you're not really improving that much. So, and really, what you're just doing there is you're working on the prompt completion kind of architecture. So the model will see what it's been given before, and it will try to continue that pattern um, that it's seeing, or what's most statistically likely should that should come next. So by giving a few examples, you can influence that. Um, if that doesn't get you to where you, yeah, Karak, jump in there if you want. Before yeah, we get no, to actual fine-tuning, which is a bit different. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm glad you, you clarified that. So is that saved uh, for future, like, let's say I, I'm i the one doing that prompt, right, and I provide those samples, and let's say Russell comes in to the same uh, service and does a similar query. Will he gain the, um, the advantage of the examples that I provided? No. So in the one-shot or the few-shot learning, the that is completely decoupled from the actual model. So it's it's completely part of your session. And I, I we have a wonderful podcast from some of your colleagues in uh, on the Microsoft research side where one of them actually told a really lovely story that he was doing a lot of research on the behavior of ChatGPT or OpenAI as such, um, and was having some fairly deep conversations with it. And he said he was so disappointed every morning when his friend didn't remember any of that conversation. He had to start again. So, you know, even our researchers who are really at the forefront of this get kind of taken away by how human this kind of interaction can be. But no, your um, your one shot or few shot prompting is only session scoped. So you'd have to build an application layer that sends the same sort of examples in every time to make that a bit more consistent. That, that's really just it's just made something twig in my mind because I do these GitHub Copilot demos quite often. And mm -hmm. when I start scratch and I'm for it beforehand, I try a few things and it, and yeah, it does roughly what I'm expecting it to do. And then as I get into it and I'm doing different things and, and people are asking me to try different things, it's changing. And I'm like, I'm, I really don't know what it's going to do next. But but 
now that you talk about that history of the prompt and it's remembering that that really makes sense in context of when I'm doing something and I, I hit enter on a line, it's got the context of my code. Um, it, it will give me something different depending on whether I've already tried something before or not in that session. And, and that, that's quite clever because it's uh, I, as a programmer, I get into doing something and generally I'm going to focus on doing that repeatable thing for a while, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, copying variables from one bit to another or something. You want to do it for the whole object and then you will move on to the next thing. And it and it does replicate that kind of behavior. And, and you have that's to kind of tell it, actually, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something different now. And you give it the comments yeah. to say, I'm going to, it's very, uh, but now it's kind of making sense. And, and then you've answered a few other things as well, which is really <laughs> coming clear I in guess. my mind, which is great. I mean, yeah. for, for full disclosure, I don't know how, so the Copilot is, is essentially an application that Microsoft has implemented with chat. GPT or OpenAI as one of the components. Um, and um, I don't actually know how that's implemented in terms of how often your session is restarted. So, you know, every time that you're, uh, presumably it's a multi-turn conversation, as you say, where there's a bit of history that the application orchestration pushes through. But this is really, really important thing to understand that if you're looking to build applications yourselves with um, the OpenAI service, there are a lot of design choices that you can make about how much context you provide on each interaction. Yeah, and I, sorry, I know I've taken you away from fine tuning, which is what no, you're that's fine. We can come back to that. <laughs> the, the other point was, um, you know, I'd always envisaged OpenAI, and if you want to pull your own instance in, and you want to have it in your subscription, it's like, okay, I'm getting a copy of that model, and then I'm I'm making changes to it to specify. But that's not the case at all, right? You're just choosing a model that everybody's looking at but you're adding to it and augmenting around it using cognitive services. So. You you are actually getting your own deployment. Um, oh, you uh, are? Okay. As, yeah, the, you can, so when you're fine tuning, so this brings us to fine tuning actually, um, that the key thing to understand is yes, so if you're provisioning the OpenAI service, uh, that is provisioned in your instance. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that when you're fine tuning, you're still not changing the model. So, so far we've talked about prompts where you're giving one shot, few shot context um, and nothing else. So if we move on to fine tuning, that's what you do when you have a particular use case. And uh, it, the, the few shot example doesn't quite get you there. It doesn't quite kind of adapt to your particular domain. So what you'd have to collect then or find in your historical data is um, prompt completion examples, successful prompt and completion examples, exactly the kind that you would use in a one-shot or few-shot um, prompt. But instead, you're providing those as uh, separate training data, and you then trigger a one-off process that trains some additional, you can think of it almost as a, as a wrapper that sits on top of the model. So there's some additional layers that, um, that are added to the model. And that tweak the uh, the output for you depending on on that. And one of the interesting things, um, so this is where I don't have enough insight exactly in how that's implemented in the Azure OpenAI service. But in the general concept, if you do this with smaller LLM models, you can do this kind of thing, um, you know, manually on your own compute resource if you have enough. Um, and something that can happen there is if your fine tuning is too specific for a very specific task then it can lead to something called catastrophic forgetting. So you actually make your make your model so focused on those last layers that you're kind of breaking <laughs> the uh, the remembering under the hood. So uh, sometimes it, it's a good idea to fine tune on a bunch of different 
specific task for your use case together and you get better results. So there's some really interesting dynamics that happen there. But just coming back to the practicality, your fine tuning data is, again, purely dedicated to you. It doesn't go anywhere else. It sits in your it's it's kept in your um, subscription and your instance. Okay, and and yeah, thank you. That that model underneath, um, you know, the the big model that's taken years to build and costs however many dollars it did to build it. How often does that get retrained, refreshed, updated, or does it not? Is it is it purely read only? Uh, yeah, it 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 doesn't get refreshed under the hood. So there will be different versions released. So if you look at the OpenAI service, then you'll have a, a list of options of things you can deploy. You mentioned earlier there's some embedding models and so on. And so it would be quite explicitly announced that there would be a new version. So I think we are on GPT uh, version 0301 or something, the one that was released on 1st of March. Um, and recently there was a more more recent one that that uh, is released, and you would quite explicitly choose to to make a new deployment and upgrade your application to point to that. Um, and I would expect that you would actually have to really review most of your prompt engineering when you're switching to a new model. So I think that's part of the question in terms of application design um, that we're in very early stages about. You know, how do you build in backward compatibility into these things? I think these are all very new topics. Yeah, that's uh, again, choice of model can impact performance of how quickly you get responses back and what kinds of responses you're going to get. So I, I guess there's you've got to factor that in as well. So it might not be that the latest and greatest model is the best one to go for. It might be that that's just happens to be the latest one. Um, and the use case that you've got will be well suited to GPT you know, 2.0 or whatever it was that was out there a long time ago. Yeah. And this is another one just to flag, you know, GPT is one of those models that is because it's so big, it is it it has all this sort of multifaceted skill set. But there are slightly more specific architectures, like some of the embedding models, for example, that are really good at particular tasks, like recognizing entities. Um, so in general, the guidance that I've heard, I haven't put this into practice, but the guidance that I've heard is that if you find that an AI use case works well with GPT-4, um, it's worth then make, doing some experiments on whether you can downgrade and kind of become specific about the particular use case that you're trying to address and essentially save money, save resources um, in, in doing that in a lighter lighter way. Yeah, that's one of the things that I discovered is that, you know, as you said, there's a, there's a lot of models there when you go into the OpenAI Studio and, and for the chat uh, feature, the prompt and the response could call continuation the thing is they call it to get that feature you're going to need one of the models that typically start with the word gpt right uh, and uh, i think we're using gpt 3.5 turbo 16k uh, now i believe there's as you said there's other models for which have the word embedding uh, in them and uh, I, when i was uh, playing around with the transcripts uh, of the podcast uh, i uh, i used that to uh, to to create the um, uh, the vectors, right, uh, for for all of the input data. So taking all of those data and uh, running running it through that model for for creative for creation of the uh, individual embeddings that could be saved into the vector database, right, which I believe is uh, kind of the next step uh, of what we're trying to do here. Because right until now, the way we've described it is that all we have is a bunch of text, and we can tell OpenAI to reason over that text by giving it all sorts of hints, prompts, uh, you know, uh, continuations. It can it can try to learn as it goes along, but it's still got that 
block of text that we gave it uh, originally. The question is, how, how do we get that block of text to start with, right, in, in the idea? That's what our customers want to know is that I've got, you know, 10,000 uh, records over here somewhere, <clears throat> and uh, I need to search them or, or, or kind of ask questions of that, uh, of all of the, that information. And so you need, I think the next, next evolution of this is you need some sort of a search uh, service. And it could be uh, uh, an API that you already have, I guess, right? A customer may have an API that returns some information uh, based on a query, and you can take that information and pass it to OpenAI and say, hey, you know, answer, answer, answer my question with this data, right? And it'll do the best, I suppose, that it can under those circumstances. Uh, so <clears throat> I guess that's the kind of easy way to for a customer to take existing data and integrate it to OpenAI. Is that is that a reasonable way to think about it or from a starting point? Yeah, I'm glad you've brought up the vector vector search side of things. Because um, that's I suppose it's so the the vectorization of language is a really core component of how OpenAI works. Um, and before I waffle on for too long about that, I'll come back to that. The, if you're using the embedding models, you are essentially more directly using just that component. Um, and so it's a way of converting language into a numeric representation that captures meaning. Um, and then you can do, without OpenAI, some very simple matching of your question and the numeric representation of your question and the numeric representation of all your data that you have vectorized in that way and find batches by something called cosine similarity. So there's particular databases, particular libraries that are that, that help you with that. So if your goal is just to find a good match to your search, it's a really lightweight way of doing that compared to deploying OpenAI. Um, and, but you're still leveraging that, that kind of core feature of, of uh, the the very rich representation that we've built OpenAI on top of, which is those embedding. Um, if you've kind of heard um, uh, models such as BERT, uh, there's many derivatives of BERT, B-E-R-T, Roberta, and so on. They're all derivatives and slightly similar approaches to this problem of vectorization. So, um, and I think we recently also have a preview in cognitive search that allows you to directly, cognitive search up until now has allowed you to index documents. It now also integrates if you want to take data, vectorize it, and then store those vectors directly and do that kind of vector search, which it sounds like is what you've played with. That's, that's yeah. So initially I went, I was writing some Python code to do that, you know, to take the, uh, some of the transcripts. Uh, one of the one of the limitations is of vector of the embeddings is that it only takes uh, I think chunks of data. You can't really give it a big document. I think it's limited to 4K. Uh, I think they call them tokens, which I guess is roughly words, right? Although it may not be exactly that. Yeah, uh, three quarters of a word or so. Three quarters. Good... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, so you know if you have uh, so you know you have to kind of chunk uh, the your input whatever input you have into that size and then embed it, create the embeddings uh, and then you can pass those embeddings onto Azure Cognitive Search uh, feature to to store them as vectors and as you said the uh, the advantage here is that when you do query uh, you can it'll now take the vector the the vectors that are of your query and will be able to find a much more meaningful match uh, for the documents that you want. 
Now, is that oh, the same sure. as the semantic search feature? Because I also enable that in Azure Cognitive Search too. Is is, is that kind? Of, are they both related? Like, is semantic search just by default the vector uh, a vector database? Ah, oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I'm not actually sure about all the details of how semantic search. Semantic search is on the API side of cognitive search, isn't it? It's so we yeah, have for the. Yeah, for the in the cognitive search, uh, when you when you create the service, you just have to enable that feature. Uh, yeah. I chose the free plan, which is a thousand uh, queries, a thousand searches per month. Uh, but uh, apparently, when you do that, you know, that's all you have to do. And then the API will start returning different responses, right? Your search API will yeah. now return the uh, uh, responses that are ordered in uh, in semantic. Uh, uh, importance, right? Uh, based on the question that you asked, it's not just blindly looking at the words yeah, that you yeah, entered. Yeah, it's exactly, actually yeah. under, understanding the intent of what you asked for and returning the records in the correct sequence. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's definitely based on um, whole number of natural language processing of the the generation before generative AI. Um, I am certain that it will be using embeddings because exactly as you described, it's it's context aware of the use of a word. So if I talk about a bow, it will know whether it's related to a tree or a ship, depending on what else is going on in that sentence, as one example. Um, and um, but what I don't know is I, I don't think it is a vector similarity search where we actually do the matching on a numerical basis as opposed to, uh, yeah, it, Basically, yeah, semantic natural language processing. So there's a bit of stuff under the hood there that I can't, I don't know the right answer, so I'll refrain. <laughs> it uh, from what I from what I read, it looks like the uh, the cognitive search now supports. Uh, it is a, it is a vector database. No, so it I'm does, assuming yeah. that yeah. Mm. So I'm assuming that when you when you do the query, it is doing it at least on that uh, using the vector uh, cosine. I don't know if it does cosine similarity. Yeah. Maybe using a different oh, kind no, no, of absolutely. similarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. that's the yeah. that's the new feature. So the new feature is the the vector search preview. I think. Yeah. Um, the semantic search has been around for a bit longer, so okay. So that's yeah, kind many of a, kind generations of overlaid on top, on top of, of each other. Yeah, <laughs> got it. Yeah. So, so that's what I did in the in the um, in in the podcast uh, transcripts. Uh, so interestingly, you know how OpenAI featured in very often in the whole pipeline, right? Right from the first, uh, just uh, transcribing all the MP3s. So just our recording today. You know, we generally publish all the MP3s on our um, on our Azure podcast. So uh, I wrote a Python app to take the MP3s and to use the uh, Whisper uh, model uh, from also from OpenAI. Uh, but you run that locally on your on my computer. Luckily, I have a uh, a gaming computer over here, which uh, which is <laughs> eight core. Uh, because it it took ah oh, Sujit, this took, is where I'm I'm supposed to tell you that you can download it from Azure ML. You're just uploading. You're just uh, setting me up for that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it took me three and a half days to to transcribe all the all the episodes on my gaming wow. computer. It ran cool. at 99% CPU for three and a half days, right? Um, so this Python application just enumerated all the MP3s and 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 kind of uh, converted them into transcripts. Sorry, you were going to. I'll I'll give you the floor to continue what you were going to say about Azure ML. <laughs> no, that's super interesting. I mean, I love what you're talking about there because it's it really brings it home to listeners as well that it's not this one intelligent AI that you now use for everything, but you have to be quite creative and you have to still use your development skills to figure out 
how do I best use this component to achieve this particular thing, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, getting the transcripts uh, and, uh, you know, this is uh, some of the, uh, I guess, the, the uh, where uh, you can combine uh, different um, types of data, right, uh, when you're doing queries. So, you know, they talk about how video and the um, and the what's said in the video can be combined together. So when I'm find something it can point me to exactly the point in the in the place in the mp3 or the place in the in the video where that is said right uh, so so that kind of connection is the next level up but that's the the promise of this technology especially with with vectors is that we can we can search across all these uh, media formats so we were all talking about text here but i think you mentioned earlier how now even uh, uh, you know, uh, video uh, mm. uh, can also be part of that search, and and uh, it's it's essentially the vectorization of all this data uh, yeah, that is making yeah, it yeah. possible, right? Because uh, when it's all numbers, uh, it's all easy for the computer to, to kind of figure out exactly where you should be looking. <laughs> yeah, this is actually one of the crux of these transformers that um, I mentioned it earlier, right? That text is coming together with with uh, with imagery and. The best way to think about that is just to say that if you think about an image, we used to have convolutional neural networks that used to look at what surrounds a particular pixel to, to kind of get a sense of image context. Um, and what transformers have allowed you to do is to take an image and basically just create chunks of it and line them up. So you, you scan across the top, you go around next line, scan along, and then essentially you end up with a long sequence of image chunks. And that's a sequence, the same as a text is a sequence. But now you might say, yeah, but the text is kind of lined up as it should be, whereas the image sequence is totally scrambled now because I've got uh, one piece of the image about 20 blocks away from where it would otherwise be next to, if you sort of right. imagine a, a scan across the image. And this is the magic of the transformers, that the model can learn relationships of what's important that are quite far away in terms of sequence. And this is what, why, why this paper was called Attention is All You Need, because the model can discover that actually for this word, that this word is here, what's actually important is really long range pattern in this text because it's actually a news article. And that's why they use these kinds of words here. And that's why it also mm. works in images, because that block one and that block 20 are actually really closely related, even though they're now really far away from each other. But they, in information terms, they come from the same corner of the image. Right. So the model is able to still work with that. So you've hit exactly on the magic of why transformers are so powerful. That's that's very insightful. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, so we we did that first step, right, of of, of transcribing all these you now with the with using the whisper uh, models. And there were a few models I had to play around with. I used a small model. I think they have uh, various models even in whisper, uh, yeah. which had gave me good performance. Uh, now now I have you know. 460 text files, right, which I uploaded to Blob Storage, uh, mm -hmm. and and and, the, and then the next step is to take that uh, those text files and you know run the uh, the embedding model on them and store them all the generated vectors into a vector database, right? So that's kind of I started doing that with with, with Python, but I mean, when I first started this process about a few weeks ago. And then right in the middle, Azure uh, OpenAI announces service where you can you can import your data, you can bring yeah. in your data directly. Basically, does everything that I was struggling to do in Python. Oh my goodness, code. that's happening so, all so the time. It's, it's just hard like, to keep I was up. like, oh, <laughs> I don't need to write code anymore. I just point to the thing. It did exactly what I was trying to do in Python code, which is you know 
took the whole data, st- uh, broke it up into chunks, ran the embedding, stored the thing into the vector database, and that was it, right? I didn't have to do anything. That was yeah, kind of interesting. Like, it took our 450 base records and created approximately 3,800 uh, uh, embedded uh, records, I should say. I don't know if that's the correct term, but yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's happening all the time. You were saying earlier you, you downloaded the Whisper model. Um, we recently had the uh, announced the Azure ML model catalog. So this is the interesting thing now. Um, as you know, OpenAI is still sometimes a bit region limited, depending on which kind of models you want to work with. But so much of this is flowing into some of the other ser- services. So the OpenAI Whisper, you can deploy with a click um, onto Azure ML compute. So you don't have to take up your gaming laptop for days anymore. Um, and then over the top of that, the the kind of uh, orchestration. So all of that orchestration of many different steps is also something where there's more and more tooling that is becoming available. Um, so yeah, more stuff for us all to learn. <laughs> I, I must say that the one, uh, one, one area I'm hoping they would improve on in this process is that uh, there it doesn't seem to be a way to update the uh, the data feed, right? So I've given it my feed of 460 records and it's static to 460 records. I can't like now we're going to add a new episode today, uh, but there isn't any way for me to say, hey, here's another document, right? I literally have to add the document, delete the previous index and create a brand new one with, oh, okay. uh, with, the, with the overall which uh, I'm hoping that there is the, you know, essentially they're not creating an indexer in Azure Cognitive Search, right? Azure Cognitive Search has this concept of indexers, right? Then that's what they're for. They, you know, they can yeah, update exactly. the index periodically. But when they, when uh, OpenAI creates this index into Azure Cognitive Search, it doesn't create a, a corresponding indexer. It's just a one-time index that it creates yeah, because it's a specialized the, embedding uh, index, it, I think. That's why. It may just be the preview period. I'm, I suspect that's something I'm that's hoping, coming. I'm hoping. Or I think yeah. otherwise you can also have your own cognitive service in- instance and plug it onto that. So uh, in your case, actually, I think that would make a lot of sense where you just create your own cognitive services instance. And when you hit the button to add your data, rather than create a new one, you select your existing one. And then you can manage that in the same way that we've managed our cognitive search instances uh before so which has an api to re-index so i think i think in that sense that's already possible all right that sounds good i'll have a look into that next time cj you should uh, ask kale if you can borrow his bit mining rigs i'm sure he's got some uh <laughs> got some serious compute for all that stuff that he does on on that side of things so, but, uh, uh, yeah I, I just want to say one thing though you know i uh, I did try the tra- the transcriptions first. Uh, I, I tried to run them. So uh, Azure sp- uh, Cognitive Speech Service, right, which has been around for a while, has got transcriptions uh, facility. So my first started transcribing it that way, right? I said, oh, yeah, I don't have to do anything. I just wrote a program to submit all the trans- transcriptions, and I was doing it. And but after about 100, uh, about 50 or so transcriptions, it had some sort of error. I didn't remember what. But I couldn't figure out why there was an error. It turned out that it had already um, cost me $450 to transcribe those, those documents. I think I was running out of budget, which is why it stopped on my subscription. So the, that's when I realized, oh, this you know, running this compute in Azure is, is convenient, but it's also expensive, right? Uh, and then I said, okay, I've got the gaming laptop here, so let me run it there. It took three and a half days, yes, but, you know. That's one of the things that surprised me around um, when I've been playing with the OpenAI stuff, 
it, it's actually been very, very cheap. Um, but I am just using the basic stuff. So I'm not, I'm not adding loads of indexes and stuff to it. I'm just basically deploying the models that are there and just calling, um, you know, using the API to, to to ask it, send it prompts basically and do stuff. And that doesn't seem to cost very much at all. So that that, that was a bit of a surprise because I thought setting up my own instance was going to be, you know, involving lots of lots of data, lots of compute and all the rest of it, but um doesn't seem to be. Uh, I, I will say, I mean, just in all, you know, we like to be open about costs over here on the show and, uh, you know, in the using the Azure Compute Services uh, feature for the semantic search, like I said, I chose the de- the default, which is a free free plan, which gives you about a thousand. The next step up, it's five hundred dollars. So there's like it's you know, uh, it, it, so yeah, it it will cost uh, quite a bit if you do decide to use this uh, more for a streamlined uh, production service. But yeah, I mean, uh, there's nothing in between. It's zero or five hundred. So uh, Again, it depends what your what your use case is, isn't it? And that, that's the interesting thing that the GPT models, because they're so general, you could just use it as a calculator or something, right? It can do the very, yeah, very exactly. simplest of tasks, but you've got to just make sure that you're you're applying the right technology in the right space. And I think that's the challenge that that we've got is to try and you know make sure our customers are doing doing the right kind of thing, identifying the right scenarios. Um, yeah. So, Linda, I know you, you know you you've been you've been um, putting up with me joining some of your sessions where, where you've been trying to educate our customers a little bit. And um, I kind of assumed to start with AI 900 as there's the learning path for this, but you, you you don't seem to think that's the best way to go. And I think the tools have moved on and and so on. So just, you know, for somebody that's, that's you know, I've been a developer for, for my old career. I just want to learn more about open AI, how to use it, how AI works a little bit, how to, more how to use it um, in anger. How do I? How do I? Where should I start? Uh, actually, AI nine hundred is uh, certainly. I don't want to be disparaging about. It's a really good foundation course that looks broadly across um, the capabilities that we have, and one of the modules is also an introduction to the OpenAI service. So what we've been talking about today, um, okay. and that's also fully up to date and really great. I think the one part where I was a little bit cautious is that within the AI 100, uh, AI 900, sorry, the introductory model to the Azure Machine Learning Service is very much focused at just the the kind of um, low code features of Azure okay. Machine Learning, and that really doesn't, in my mind, keep up with what we need these days anymore. Um, we've moved on to um, a really powerful uh, platform within Azure ML for uh, for code first development of Azure, of machine right. learning models, um, and increasingly that also supports generative AI workflows. Uh, there is something called Azure Machine Learning Prompt Flow, which helps you with some of the orchestration that Sujit was talking about. You want to do many things, you want to chain together various processes, and it gives you those kind of capabilities. Um, so for that, I don't think there's an MS Learn module just yet. That's pretty new. Uh, but there's a nice build session that maybe we can dig out and supply um, to folks on this. So, yeah, that that was my caveat on the 900, okay. I think. <laughs> right, great. So I'm glad I understand that now. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I think it, using the code first approach is, is something I'm more familiar with as well. And that fits in with kind of the, the right approach around governance and how to put stuff through source control repos, make it reproducible, redeployable and, and maintainable. So that that's all good. And I can use GitHub Copilot with it as well. So that's, that's yeah. Good. I can't yeah, live without right. that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, if if you so for, for folks who want to get 
into the data pipelining capabilities. So we, we said earlier that the biggest shift um, or one of the big shifts with this new AI is that we're moving from having to train AI to having to use AI, right? And so some of the challenges then come exactly like what you were describing there, Sujit, that you can get hold of a model relatively easy. You can deploy that model relatively easily. So it's available with an API, you can call it. But now you've got a new challenge of how do you create the data pipelines to get your big data to that model at the right rate um, and with the right sort of scalability. So that's where um, Azure machine learning pipelines are really powerful because you can basically set up um, compute pipelines that can target the right kind of compute in different steps of the pipeline. So you might have a step that benefits from running across a load of small CPU machines. And then the next step needs a couple of big GPUs. And those are the things that you can orchestrate really nicely. Um, and the DP100 course is probably the best one to, to get into that topic. Great, thank you. That's amazing, thank you. Yeah, we, and we'll put all these links in the show notes, uh, of course, uh, so our listeners will have them handy. Uh, no, that's great, uh, Russell. Uh, any 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 uh, more thoughts from Linda before we wrap up here? I'm just curious if uh, any of the other oddities that you've encountered. You sort of hinted at that. I've explained a lot of things in your mind, Russell, but I'm I'm curious of what sort of fun things you've encountered in uh, talking to OpenAI. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's uh, the 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 things I've had that have been strange have just been since playing with Sujit's implementation of OpenAI. To be fair, so oh, I'm it's blaming, just Sujit. I'm, 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 I'm blaming the, uh, yeah, it's, it's just my my dumb implementation. I'm and, blaming and, the playground and, piece. Yeah, and I chose the option of of uh, of not limiting it only to data. You know, as you said, that's a that's an option, right? Where you can say limit your responses to only my data, and mm. I uh, didn't choose that option. I, so I gave it the flexibility of of augmenting the data with, because we do have a public website, we do have a feed over there. So, you know, and yeah. it was, I think it was doing a good job of augmenting with public available information, which is a nice thing, you know, because I mean, the data that we have is not public in any way, right? It's, it's, it's so it's, we're not too concerned about it, but it, it, it's nice how it will take the data that we provided and it will take well-known sources on the internet. It referenced our podcast website very frequently in responses, uh, you know, so, uh, it does a good job by just combining yeah. what's on the, like augmenting what's on the internet with your own data, you know, or vice versa. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think there is, you know, the, I think it's important to be conscious that you can never 100% protect against, even if you specify only use data that we're talking about, you can't protect around the model making different choices. We didn't really talk about temperature, which is a factor that can also affect the, that you don't get the same response every time that you ask the same question. Um, I think the most important thing about all of this is that if you're building anything that uses OpenAI under the hood, is that you're really transparent with your end users of what's happening here. What is this like? What can go wrong? And just set the right expectations of how people should consume the content that you're presenting them with um, and not try to pretend that it's a human. I don't know why we do that. I think we do that because over a long, long, long time, we've learned that humans are generally useful to us as an assistant, whereas machines are really annoying, you know, for help on this press three. Um, but I think we should learn now that machines right. can be quite useful. So we might as well be transparent about the fact that they are machines and they're not humans. <laughs> yep. I think the implementation of chatbots over the last few years before the, the, this new version's come along has done more damage than, than good yeah. uh, <laughs> for the reputation of robots. <laughs> I think you're right. Yep. 
Well, that's been really interesting. Thank you very much, Linda, and thanks for joining on, on short notice, as I, as I say. Thanks so much, yeah. yeah please no feel problem. free to share, Pleasure any, to be here. Uh, share any information with us uh, that you think will be of interest to our listeners. We'll be happy to put them along with the show notes. Yeah, of course. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.